Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On The Wing Podcast. Listeners, you are in for a treat today because we have three wonderful personalities to talk about something that uh, has been talked about before, but with a little bit different angle. And what I'm referring to is the old cast and blast idea, the fishing and feathers, the fins and feathers. I mean, there's magazines named after this because for, since the dawn of time, people who love to fly fish just happen to love to bird hunt and vice versa. So we got three people that fit that bill, different levels of experience, but unequivocally love both fly fishing, love bird hunting. And we're going to dive into that topic and back punching her ticket once again, uh, frequent co-host on the wing podcast and the fly fishing aficionado. Uh, no, she's already shaking her head. Uh, well, she knows a heck of a lot more about fly fishing than I do. Marissa Jensen <laughs> joins me for this conversation. Uh, welcome back, Marissa. Thanks, Bob. I'm excited to be here. And I'm I'm really excited for our two guests today um, and this topic. It's it's very close to heart for me. And I think a lot of our listeners out there and you know, maybe maybe it's something that they haven't experienced yet, but have thought about. So I hope that we can uh, encourage people to give one or the other a try if they haven't so far. And, and you know, in, in perfect honesty, this is this podcast is entirely your idea. Um, <laughs> We're going to throw that out there. Well, hopefully it's a absolutely <laughs> well a, a, as as you uh, po- as you proposed it to me. You said fly fishing and bird hunting go together like peas and carrots, and which made me chuckle instantly because I would have said peanut butter and jelly, but. Peas and carrots makes sense. That's that's the Nebraska in you coming out. I oh, I, you know, I hate that because peanut butter and jelly is way better. So I don't even <laughs> like peas and carrots. So I don't know. Well, it's, <laughs> it's overused. But, but I know I, when you talk about, you know, you've been on a number of episodes talking about being an adult onset bird hunter. And part of your journey, before we introduce, and we're going to get to our featured guest, but Part of your journey, I think, is important to start this conversation because your journey kind of into the outdoors as a hunter really began with you as an angler. So Mm -hmm. talk about that um, just to get us started here. Yeah, you know, I I grew up, um, you know, in the outdoors, just not hunting. I mean, that was just never a part of my narrative or, or my direct family's narrative, but I always, you know, enjoyed camping and hiking and fishing. And and my mom um, is a terrific angler. I mean, she's just one of those people that she throws it out there and, and everything she does is just not normally what you think you're supposed to do, but she lands all the fish. And so I learned from her, um, but I didn't start fly fishing until I got older as well. And, um, you know, I think just a combination of what fly fishing is really about. And I mean, sure, you could say that for for all the different, you know, types of fishing. But for me, it was everything from the macro invertebrates to, you know, tying flies, that that true connection with the water. And um, actually, before my career with Pheasants Forever, I worked in fisheries with Nebraska Game and Park. 
Um, and so I, I had opportunities to teach um, trout in the classroom and, uh, you know, work with students and teach them how to fish. So it, it's, it has a very, very, very soft spot in my heart. Um, and definitely, I think the, the fly tying wasn't why I started hunting, but mm. oh boy, do I love connecting those two. And, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk a little bit more about that today, too. All right. So when you when you uh, position this podcast episode as peas and carrots, you also said, and I know exactly who our guests are. So go ahead and introduce our, our guests for this particular episode. Yeah, absolutely. So um, on our on our show today, we have uh, Carla Gibson and Jenny O'Brien, who uh, both come from the West Coast and are just tremendous women. Um, I haven't had the chance to meet either of them in, in true person, um, and I'm really looking forward to it. But uh, just incredible women that really inspire others to get outdoors um, through their content, whether it's um, chucker hunting, which we'll talk about in a little bit, or fly fishing, or hiking, or whatever it is. I mean, it's just, you know, they're, they're the type of individuals that you look at what they're doing, and you're like, I want to do that too. And I want to, I want to hang out with them. Uh, <laughs> Carla and I have had a few conversations about trying to get uh, connected for a hunt. So I, I hope I have the opportunity to get together with both of them soon. Um, so I'll stop talking here. And um, Carla, I'd love to, to start with you and just get a little bit of your background. Um, what came first, fly fishing or upland hunting for you? Um, bird hunting, definitely. I, uh, I've been hunting my entire life. I was raised in a hunting family with bird dogs and my father got me into upland hunting primarily. And so that's what I've been doing my whole life. It's only been the last five years I've been fly fishing. So I'm definitely still a novice at fly fishing and bird hunting actually, but I've spent more time in the hills than I have in the stream. So Carla and, and Jenny were, were speaking a little bit ahead of the show um, just about kind of the, the mentorship that's, that's happened between the two of them. And so Carla, I'm kind of going to take what, what you were just saying and how, you know, Jenny's kind of been supportive of, of you with your fly fishing and, um, then and bring it over to Jenny and, and introduce Jenny and just kind of talk about how you started Upland Hunting. Yeah. Thank you, Marissa. And thank you, Bob, for having us today. This is really fun. We're, we're both, I'm speaking on behalf of Carla and I, because we do go together like peas and carrots or, you know, <laughs> or, or, you know those things, Coors Light and hot dogs. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I grew up uh, kind of parallel to Carla in a family of outdoors focused people. Um, my father has always had labs and did a lot of pheasant and duck hunting. Um, so when I was a kid, I think there were some formulative years of my life that were spent freezing my toes off in a duck blind. Um, you know, save that for the therapist. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, and my granddad as well. And I moved, I'm originally from the Seattle area um, and spent a lot of my younger years in central Washington, my family's always had a place in the Cleelum area. And um, so we were just exposed to the outdoors. And I moved to central Oregon uh, about eight years ago now and um, got exposed really to uplands like trucker, Hungarian partridge, quail hunting um, with the acquisition of a German short-haired pointer. <laughs> and uh, I think that definitely was like a big catalyst for my interest in it. And then 
Carla and I actually met through, we both play beach volleyball. And so we met through the volleyball community and fast friends. Um, And one thing about Carla, she'll never toot her own horn, but she is really good at everything that she dedicates herself to. She's an incredible athlete and she went like full send on the bird hunting. And like, it was just kind of inspiring to see her out there and, you know, like really like working like on finding her own spots to hunt and putting the time in. And I was like, Hey, like I want to be a part of this also in part because I started to miss her like October through January. I was like, where's my friend? And so I was like, I'm going to tag along. I got this dog and she's got a lot of, you know, energy. And so, yeah, that's kind of how it all got started, but definitely exposed from a young age by my dad and, and grandfather. That's fascinating. And, and so is that how you, you started fly fishing too, or what's kind of the, the connection there? And when did you get started with that? Yeah, definitely. Fly fishing is, uh, again, something that my family has been very involved in. I mean, I was just kind of raised around it. Um, my dad's best friend has owned several lodges uh, in both Alaska and Mexico, and it was just always something that we were around. I think I picked up a fly rod for the first time when I was 14. And um, my father had at that time leased this little lake that he stocked um, right outside of Ellensburg, Washington, and was like, okay, let's go out and fish. And I was like, yeah, this can't be that hard. So I threw a back cast and immediately got everything entangled in a tree. And I was like, okay, well, what do I do now? And he's like, you climb the tree and you get your stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there was, there was a very sassy look that came across my face, but sure enough, I did it. And, um, it's really, it's actually, it's pretty cool because he has a photo of that moment, not the tree climbing, but of me like <laughs> with braces and like some, you know, permed bangs or something <laughs> like, <laughs> with a fly rod in my hand and, and it's pretty cool. He sent it to me. So um, that was definitely kind of my, my intro. And then as the years went on, um, you know, interests change and I was playing a lot of volleyball and college volleyball and moved to New York City, which for um, an outdoors person was an interesting experience. I met wonderful people, but I couldn't wait to get back to the West Coast where I could pursue the outdoor passions. And then just kind of, again, like Carla with bird hunting, I just went full into the fly fishing. Yeah. You know, and I, I talked a little bit about uh, Carla as a mentor, but Jenny, I think, um, you know, how I kind of connected with you through social media was um, a common love and uh, mentoring through the Mayfly Project. Yeah. Um, so could you tell listeners a little bit about what that organization is and, and what you do for them? Yeah, absolutely. So the Mayfly Project is a 5013C organization that their intent really is to help mentor kids in the foster uh, foster care programs and system through fly fishing. So teaching them outdoor skills, teaching them Um, you know, all about fisheries, about entomology, um, and really kind of, you know, trying to take them away from some of the day-to-day life that they may experience and help get them into a community and teach them some skills that they can take with them as whether it's, you know, stress reliever or a way to connect with other friends. And um, it's a really special, as you know, Marissa, a really special organization to be a part of and super rewarding. Um, You know, this year has been a little tough with COVID and whatnot, We've run a kind of mini project here at Bend, um, myself and, and one other mentor with one child. Uh, and it, it was just masks and the whole thing, but it was still, it's, it's really cool to see it all come together. And it's a special little family to be a part of. I feel really fortunate. 
Yeah, and it's, I mean, if you ever want to talk about, you know, how how the outdoors is healing, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's so profound when you see these children um, and just, you know, read, whether or not they catch a fish and it's just that time you spend with them in the outdoors and, and just the transition that you see with them, it's, it's pretty remarkable, so... Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about tying flies, um, you know, and and if there's opportunities to use bird feathers with those and kind of how those mesh together. Uh, Carla, is that something that that you ever do? No, I'm terrible at it. I started doing it during COVID and I was terrible. I don't have the patience at all. I got nothing. That's all Jenny. She has the patience and the skill set. I'll just use one she ties. Oh, I don't know about that. You're gonna catch anything. Um, <laughs> so Jenny, Jenny's the the fly tire of the group. Then um, I am. I am a, a novice fly tire. Um, I grew up again, like with my dad had tons of fly tying equipment, and I would sit down at his vice and find anything that was like pink, purple, sparkly, <laughs> and make creations. Is what he affectionately <laughs> referred to them as. Um, but I, I do have this little creative side of me. And so I, I got more interested in it. Like the more flies you lose, you're like, hey, man, that was like three bucks. Like I don't want to have to climb a tree every time I need a pheasant tail. So I started <laughs> I started identifying some mentors, um, one of which is Amy Hazel. Uh, she is a co-owner of Deschutes Angler Fly Shop and, and Moffin, Oregon. Um, and I have a good friend, Danny McWilliams, uh, who lives here in Bend, who's a guide and I just was like, Hey, like, can you kind of teach me some of this? And, you know, COVID was, it was a good, um, a good activity to try to pass some of the time, especially the days being short, but I do really enjoy it. I think it's really rewarding when you to kind of link the bird hunting thing is, uh, when you, you know, obtain feathers that you don't have to pay for, you pay for it with like your miles and like, you know, calories, but not necessarily with your dollars. Um, and so it, it's been fun to see the kind of the, the end result of that. Yeah. And it, it just, I think like the first time you land a fish with a fly that you tied yourself, is just like that moment oh, yeah. is just, I don't know. There's not even words for it. I mean, you just, oh, and then the first time you lose one of the flies that you tied yourself, <laughs> like heartbreaking. You just want me. So then do you, do you use chucker feathers at all? Or, I mean, I, I know, you know, quail and, and especially like the pheasant tail nymph is a really common fly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm curious about chucker feathers. You know, I haven't tried anything with chucker feathers yet, but I'm thinking like you could probably use that as like a hackle collar on, you know, like a soft hackle or something of that nature. I use a lot of pheasant tail um, around here. Uh, we do, we, we can fish all year. So we're fortunate we've got from Bend, there's really four rivers that we have access to fish and um, a pheasant tail, flashback pheasant tail, Frenchie, like those are all fly patterns that tend to work year round. Um, and so that's really what I, I'm excited to get my hands on are those, the rooster feathers, just refill up those fly boxes. And, um, but the, the Frenchie is probably one of my favorites. And I've been tying them actually lately on like with a tungsten bead and a jig hook, just because I like the way that they present in the water column and they're also a little bit easier to get out of the fish's mouth. So a lot of times by the time I net a fish, the fish has already you know, lost the fly and it's minimal, minimal handling as I, I primarily practice catch and release unless it's like a hatchery steelhead, nothing's dinner. 
What's going on? Yeah, here? and that's <laughs> I, I certainly experienced, you know. Um, I think that's one thing that I've always enjoyed with fly fishing is those little flies are so much easier to get out and you're not wrestling with a fish and yeah, um, it does make it a lot easier. So um, and I, I was gonna mention too, um, and I believe we have it on the blog. I know it was a um, you know, an article in the past, but we've done some some fly tying pieces. So if listeners are kind of scratching their head at some of the terms that we're using, or if they're interested in tying flies themselves, um, you know, maybe we can link that article to this, this podcast and you can look back and try it yourself. And I'll tell you from experience, and I'm sure Jenny and Carla will agree. Sometimes they, they look horrific, but a lot of times those really gnarly ones actually catch a lot of fish. So <laughs> And sometimes they fall apart after three casts, but hey, that's three casts that you got with them. So yeah, we'll, we'll make sure that to get that out there for everyone. What do you, uh, I guess, what what's your, your go-to fly uh, for trout fishing then? What's uh, kind of that number one in the fly box that you like to reach for? Oh man, um, for me, it depends on if I'm dry fly fishing, streamer fishing or nymph fishing. Um, so I'll give you one for each of those. Um, for streamers around here, I really like Thin Mint, which is kind of a variation of like a woolly bugger, tends to work pretty well. Um, for dry flies, it's purple, the purple haze, as Carla and I say, purple haze for days. Tends to work really well. Um, and then I find myself using a lot of uh, pheasant tail, um, zebra midges, um, Black Assassins, Rainbow Warrior. I like I like a lot of the smaller um, nymph patterns. Um, hare's ears, those types of things tend to work across most of the river systems that we fish out here. Yeah, and, and for those that aren't uh, you know involved with with uh, fly fishing, I think the names of flies are one of my favorite things. It, it they are so abstract, and I love to go to local stores um in different states that i haven't been to before and i'll pick the most abstract bizarre named fly i can just just for the fun of it <laughs> yeah yeah Carla, what about you what uh what are some of your go-to flies well if you um ever ask jenny i only dry fly fish i don't nymph ever i can't stand it i will cast to nothing versus having to nymph so um it's so true. we call it nodding Nymphing is <laughs> yeah, I, um, but no, uh, you know, we use a purple haze on all these small rivers around here, even on the Deschutes, you can catch a trout on a purple haze all the time. So I always have a pile of those because I lose them in the trees. Um, but we have a really great hatch here that's in like May, that's a salmon fly hatch. And I did tie and successfully catch a fish on a chubby Chernobyl I tied myself. So that is my favorite fly now in the box. <laughs> the chubby Chernobyl. <laughs> uh -huh. All I've got, but I caught a fish on it, so I'm going with that one. <laughs> yep, yeah, that's right. Uh, let's go ahead and, and kind of switch gears a little bit here and uh, dive into the chucker hunting, because I know that that's a huge passion uh, for you, Carla, and, and Jenny, that you've started to get into that as well. I've never chucker hunted before. Uh, you know, I've just seen images of it, so... I have to kind of ask, you know, why? <laughs> <laughs> um, I asked myself that question too. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's hard. The scenery is beautiful. The dogs are amazing. And you get to see areas that no one has ever stepped before. And that's pretty cool, especially in the time and age where people are everywhere. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I could I can definitely see the allure to that. Um, you know, we hear lots of names, you know, that that come with that too. And I know we've we've got some staff that love to chase them as well. And so I kind of follow vicariously through them. So, you know, red like a devil is one that I've heard. Uh, what are some other, you know, terms or is that kind of what sums it up? You, you've got chucker or red like a devil. Yeah, we call them devil birds. And after you chase them the first time, you'll understand why they're called that for sure. Um, they run uphill and they fly 50 miles an hour downhill over top of you and laugh as they fly by. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. But the, the terrain, like you <laughs> said, I mean, it's just fascinating. Um, you know, it, it, it looks like you know, you, you probably have to work out all year round just to be able to walk those hills. And, um, you know, is it pretty, I think I saw pictures of you wearing, um, you know, massive amounts of water, trying to get ready for trekking, you know, with the dogs and heavy lifting. Um, you know, what kind of do you do in the, the off season to get ready for it? Yeah, I mean, my problem is I have four dogs, so they require a lot of water and I become a water Sherpa. Um, especially early season. So um, actually this off season, Jenny and I both have Peloton bikes. And that is what I've been doing a lot of is just trying to get my legs in shape because we hike 10 to 13 miles of side hill up and down hills all day. And it's, it's the most physically demanding thing I've ever done. And I've done, you know, half Ironman. So. That's impressive. <laughs> That so was a Jenny, long, when, when, long time uh, ago, too. <laughs> Jenny, when uh, when Carla took you on the first checker hunt, did, did you think she was crazy, or what was your impression? Um, well, I knew I've known her for a long time, so I knew she was crazy before that, <laughs> and that's why we're friends. Um, but <laughs> uh, no, I had some exposure to it prior, so I kind of knew what I was getting into, and. Both of us really enjoy hiking. Um, Carl's a snowboarder, I ski. So, you know, being up and down hills isn't too unfamiliar, but there were a couple of times where I just, I mean, we, you know, we're on like these ledges of basalt rock and you're looking down and I, I don't do super well with heights. And I have these like come to Jesus moments with myself of like, what am I doing up here? <laughs> like I could honestly be like having like a pastry <laughs> coffee right now, but it's like six in the morning and we're like on our way, slamming some like awful McDonald's breakfast <laughs> and like going to, to torch those calories. Um, but I think just everything that Carla said, it's, it's the expansiveness and it's a place where you are so small in this massive, beautiful place where you're not going to run into a bunch of other people. And it's kind of, you know, along the lines of fishing where it's like each step, it, it's kind of like your therapy and you get some time to like mill things over, whether it's work or relationships, you know, things in your mind while you're out there. And um, I don't think there's anything that can come close to, at least for me personally, the outdoors as a form of like healing and like, you know, kind of mapping things out and, um, yeah, so, but there, I definitely have looked at her like she's crazy before. 
and she's so good at it. She's she's just she's put in so much time with knowing, like you know what habitats look like and where there's going to be birds versus where there's not. And there have been times where we've gone out and we haven't seen anything. And there have been times where we've gone out like scouting outside of an open season. And we've seen a lot of things, which gets exciting for us, but it's, you know, it's all, I think really about that community too. Like I'm out there with my best, one of my best friends and our like wild pack of bird dogs. And (laughs) it's pretty great. So what do you look for specifically, you know, for habitat, you mentioned kind of, you know, how Carlos helped with that. What are you guys looking for to, to try and target? Um, I'll go ahead and answer that, Jenny. Um, I mean, these birds need food and they need water and they live in really steep rock outcroppings. They use rock and gravel to put in their craw to break down their food. So you find the steepest hill with water somewhere nearby and that's where they're going to be. You you asked about, or you, you mentioned this wild pack of bird dogs. <laughs> and I think, I think Jenny, you mentioned you have one short hair and mm-hmm. Carla has four dogs and in chucker hunting, are you running all five dogs together at the same time? We, we do. We'll take, um, really well. Okay. So I'm not going to like step on Carla's toes here, but she's got, she runs two labs and two pointers. And as a couple of years ago, I had some sort of work trip or something where I was out of town and I needed care for my short hair Kai. And I entrust Carla with Kai. She's auntie Carla. And, uh, and Kai and Carla's, uh, oldest yellow lab, Jesse are very good friends. And, um, Carla and, and her, her partner, Craig took Kai out for a weekend. And I think they were like, Oh, wow. Like we do like how, you know, short hairs range. So, uh, the short hairs are usually the ones that are out there, you know, ranging far. And then the labs are really good at picking up scent close by and, um, you know, doing retrieves and things like that. But yeah, we run them all together. So we we often joke that it's not like a dog run; it's a dog yell. We're <laughs> 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 trying to corral them. Um, but they know they know the difference between when they're out there having a good time versus when they're working. And I think all five of them are very down down to business. Sweet. I mean that that is um, you know when I haven't ever chucker hunted, and it's definitely on that list, right? And you hear that, you know, you got to cover so much ground to try to find them. So you can suspect, you know, five dogs is an advantage. I mean, in some respects, it's probably a a handful, (laughs) but um, it's an advantage in terms of trying to find them. And, you know, there's that that saying about chucker hunting. You do it the first time for the adventure and every time after that for revenge. Uh, is there, is that, is there truth in that or is that just the same? No, there's a hundred percent truth to that. Um, (laughs) there have been times when, you know, I hunt all four of our dogs often, um, because I like to hunt and I want them to go and that's, they're good at. And so having as many dogs on the ground, like Jenny said, to have the labs that hunt close, the short hairs hunt far, and we still miss birds. I mean, not even like missing them with the gun, but can't find them. And you hear them cackling behind you laughing. And it's like, how in the world did we just put in 500 dog miles and not find that freaking pile of birds? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's definitely something I think, Bob, we're going to have to take a trip out there and, and, 
and meet Carla and Jenny in person here pretty soon. <laughs> oh, I, I admit I, I was checking out um, Instagram before we started. And I want to throw out both of your, your Instagram handles. Carla, you're at Oregon Outdoor Girl, right? Yes, and and Jenny is at C to Sage, which uh, I thought was you know, both of them are are super, you know, illustrative of who you are as people, right? See, you know, C to Sage, fishing to hunting, Oregon, Oregon outdoor girl, your roots in the outdoors, um, and then I dove in and checked out the photos, and you both kick my ass when it comes to fishing. <laughs> my gosh. But the 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 trout that you've caught this season is sick. Is it is that kind of a standard year for both of you, or is it uh, has it been a really good season? I would say <laughs> that Jenny catches more fish and Jenny catches bigger fish. I only post the pictures of the big fish I catch. Usually, I catch micro trout. <laughs> That's not true. She wrangles them. She does. Um, yeah, I uh, I've done a good amount of trout fishing. I've I've got a pretty uh, intense full time job, so I haven't been able to escape. Um, and I'm I'm in uh, I work for a software company, and my area is healthcare and life sciences. So mm. when COVID hit, things got a little crazy. Um, but I'm not complaining. I'm appreciative to have a job and work for a great company. Um, but I haven't been out as much as I'd like this year. Um, but I've the last two years really gotten impassioned with steelhead fishing, um, particularly swinging flies with spay rods um, and targeting summer and winter on steelhead. And so that's where I've been kind of concentrating my efforts this summer, trying to get out and do the trout fishing. And it's also something fun to do with your girlfriends. Like we'll pack up and grab some snacks and some drinks and head out after work. And just, you know, it's more about the time together than it is with targeting the fish um and we bring the dogs along um for the most part some of the dogs get left behind but kai is a little fishing buddy she'll yeah carla's shaking her head gage is gage is one of carla's labs and she's just the sweetest but she is not the best fishing buddy because she's a lab and she just wants to be in the water wherever <laughs> you are fishing <laughs> but we love her and yesterday was her birthday and spay rods are they're different, correct? Like they're a little bit bigger and, and are they one piece or what's the difference with a spay rod than like a traditional fly rod? So spay rods really are for two-handed casting um, and they, they're typically anything over like 11 and a half feet. Um, depending on what rivers and like where you're fishing, like here in Oregon, we can get away with um, anywhere from a, like a six weight to a seven weight spay, some eight weight for winter fish. Um, but I really have enjoyed learning the different variations of spay casting and, and swinging flies for hmm. steelhead. And it's, um, it's such an incredible species of what they go through from, you know, rivers to the ocean to back to the river systems and their spawning grounds and the adversity that they face. Um, and I, I will only uh, swing a fly for steelhead. Just, I think they deserve that respect. So when you get one, it's a very, uh, emotional, at least for me, it's a really emotional moment just knowing what that fish has gone through and like everything lined up perfectly in that moment. Um, the right fly, the right water conditions, the right presentation. And I, I've been known to be a crier when I connect with this deal because I'm just so full of joy and like appreciation. But yeah, that's kind of they are a, they are a fascinating fish. And you know, you kind of 
brought up a good topic that, you know, I think it is important to talk about. And, um, you know, that's just the, what goes into the clean water and, and how these, you know, species rely so much on clean water and um, the habitat work that, that occurs outside of the water um, that helps keep it clean. And, um, you know, just to kind of discuss a little bit about some of those, you know, buffer strips um, and smaller areas that are alongside that, you know, those creeks and rivers and lakes. And, um, you know, it's really important because they help slow down runoff and trap sediment. And, you know, it's stuff that we we actively um, work on as the habitat organization. And I think it's just a really good connection, again, you know, talking about fly fishing and upland hunting, um, because there's a lot of commonality there when it comes to habitat. And, you know, those buffers help provide food nesting cover um, for a variety of wildlife species. And, you know, trout and, you know, a lot of those cold water fish, they are really relying on clean, high oxygenated water. Um, and, you know, so it's important for us to kind of work on that, that habitat around those areas. And uh, yeah, I mean, it just, it just fascinates me, the, the interconnection between all of that. Um, so thanks for, for bringing that up and, just going to put a, a plug in for listeners, you know, when they think about that, just think about the, the conservation organizations that are working so hard to create that habitat. Um, you know, obviously the habitat mission at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, but Trout Unlimited is a fantastic organization that we partner with as well. Um, and, you know, just thinking about that and how we need all the help we can to keep those places running. It, when you th when you break it down, it, it goes full circle because we talked about the the connection between tying a fly with a feather to catching a fish with that fly. But if you even back it up further, right? The habitat work that's done to create habitat and for wild populations of upland birds, cleans water, whether it's, you know, the, the Columbia out West or the driftless area in Southwest, um, you know, Minnesota or Southeastern Wisconsin or, or, or Northern Iowa, or even Lake Erie, you know, one of the main ways that we're cleaning up Lake Erie is through buffer strips in Ohio and, and in, in, in Michigan. And you think about just cleaning up that water and creating better habitat for, for trout. And then you go shoot the bird, create, <laughs> create the feather fly, the purple haze, I, you know, I, that, there's got to be a pheasant feather in the purple haze because I've, I, <laughs> right? There can is there, be. There, there, there can has be. to be. Yeah. And then, you know, and then you catch that, that, uh, that steelhead that Jenny was talking about. Now we're going to release most of the steelhead unless it's the farm raised one, which she mentioned, then it's going on the plate, right? Yeah, there's there's differing opinions. Um, I mean, there have been hatchery steelhead that I've caught and released before, just because they're like a like a a bee run fish that was in the Deschutes lower Deschutes and was really bound for Idaho. It was a nice big fish, and it took a swung fly. And you know, I've got a lot of friends that are uh, make their living off of guiding, and you know, I want to ensure that they have they have abundant well that's kind of a, a tricky word to use when it comes to steelhead but that other people have a chance um but you know there's a lot of and i don't want to get too political here but there's a lot of differences in, in opinion on you know hatchery versus wild fish and the implications that hatchery fish have on the the wild uh, populations so uh, for me personally 
um, if the time is right, I will, I don't mind harvesting hatchery fish, but a wild steelhead is like basically a unicorn in my mind. So mm -hmm. they get the utmost care and, and a lot of, you know, like Alaska and, and several other states, like they're protected. You can't harvest them. And um, until we start to see those returns come back at a healthy rate, personally for me, that's kind of my, my code of ethics that I run myself by. Yeah, I think that's true in most states, uh, you know, in the Great Lakes. Uh, well, in, in Minnesota here, you can catch a, a, a native steelhead, but that's got to go back in the stream after you catch it, too. Whereas the the hatchery in they're called Kamloops in Lake Superior. Um, you can in their adipose fin has been mm -hmm. removed. Uh, is that true yeah. of the hatchery fish in, in the West Coast? The adipose fin has been removed? Yeah, yeah. In most instances, um, the hatchery fish will have their adipose fin. Sometimes they'll do like a maxillary clip, like on a, a gill plate or something like that too. Um, cool. But for the most part, it's the adipose fin. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, on the the fish that you do, you know, decide to plate. Um, yeah, you know, I have to ask: Do you ever do like a, a fish and chucks, you know, instead of like a fish and dips or, you know, do like a, a multi like wild game fish meal that you could share with us? I mean, I would probably defer that to Carla because she spends a lot of time, um, her family lives on the Oregon coast and she's got access to fishing boats and whatnot and spends more time, I think, out there fishing for salmon and things like that. And let's be honest, I'm really not that good in the kitchen. I'm much better at ordering food. <laughs> I am at cooking it. <laughs> um, but I know Carla, Carla does a lot more of that. I haven't ever done that, but I think that should be our meal plan the next you know couple weeks or something. But um, <laughs> we eat a lot of salmon and we are lucky to have, as Jenny mentioned, my, my dad has a boat and we actually just went a couple weeks ago and caught some nice salmon. And then we have, we do a lot of chugger nuggets. So we bread it and fry it and eat it with, um, Sweet chili sauce. Not the healthiest way to eat the bird, but they're so delicious. Oh, sweet chili sauce is just good with anything, in my opinion. I mean, it, right? it's just hard to beat. So one question that I have for you both, and you know, it's something that I think about all the time is, you know, what makes fly fishing and umpland hunting go together so naturally? Um, because it just seems like they were made for each other. And I just love both of your input on that. I'll go first. Um, <laughs> um, I think, you know, really it, it comes down to just these beautiful places that these, these passions and lifestyles and hobbies, whatever you want to refer to it, take us to. Um, I mean, fish don't live in ugly places. Chucker don't live in ugly places. They live in hard to reach places, but it just makes it that much more worth it. And you know, I think when you, when you spend time in the outdoors like that, you become far more aware of how everything is so interdependent on one another when it comes to the environment. And by default, I think you become more interested in conservation efforts and like figuring out how you can protect these species and these spaces that you love so much. Um, and to, to kind of add to that, I think the community that it builds, I mean, you know, people who have these things in common tend to, you know, share other things in common as well and it's been so fun to have women that I can go out and spend time learning from or helping to share something that's so important to me with them you know and of course like we're really lucky here in Central Oregon I don't think anybody would deny the fact that we've got a really supportive 
just community in general, men, women, kids, everybody likes to help each other out. Like I never run into instances where, you know, there, there isn't that support. If somebody wants to learn something, they're going to put the time and effort in. Um, somebody is there to help. But yeah, I would say just the beautiful spaces, the conservation efforts, and then the friendships that are forged. Perfectly put, yeah. uh, you know, Carla. I don't know, how do I follow that up? Um, but I think <laughs> one of the things that uh, Jenny keyed on, which I think is so important, is the community. I feel like the personality types that want the challenge of upland hunting also want the challenge of fly fishing. Um, they're not easy. None of them are easy. They take a lot of learning and um, a lot of a lot of failures and you have to have someone who's willing to fail for that little success I mean, I don't know how many boxes of shells I've shot at birds But I don't it's the one I drop that makes you come back or the steelhead that you swing up that makes you go back You know, so um, and the people are so supportive in both of these communities They want to, I'm happier to see Jenny shoot a bird than I am if I could shoot one I don't care. I want to see her be successful. I want to see her dog work well and you know, I want to see her catch fish. It's just a really great group of people that tend to flock to both of these um, hobbies and lifestyles. Yeah, and you know, that, that community that you both described so eloquently is just, you know, it's exactly what we were, you know, we aim for with the Women on the Wing initiative too. And I know I have spoken with you both, Jenny and Carla, about, you know, trying to engage more women in the Oregon community and and so, you know, is that something that if somebody's interested in in the Oregon area, they can reach out to either of you and, and see about, you know, kind of building that community in your area? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the hard things about bird hunting here is we have not a lot of chucker hunting within, you know, we drive four or five hours every weekend to get to where the, a lot of the birds live. So that makes it hard. It's a pretty much, you know, for me and Craig, it becomes our lifestyle during chucker season. I, I force him to make it his lifestyle as well. Um, but we, we travel, <laughs> we become road warriors, you know, we travel hard and, and it's hard to get people who have that same desire and love to, you have to commit all the way if you're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, and it's just, I mean, I think even the the bonding that occurs outside of the field when you find individuals that are interested in the same things that, that you are and um, they find those outdoor spaces so magical. I mean, it's just, just being able to talk to one another. I mean, just like this podcast, I mean, the, the excitement that I think we're all getting just from talking about these places that I just wish I could walk out and go fish outside my door as soon as we're done with this. So <laughs> I think, you know, just supporting one another and, and encouraging and, and getting each other excited is so important. Um, you know, what are thoughts, you know, from both of you and, and Carla, I'll let you go first this time. Um, you know, how do we help introduce more anglers to the upland community? Um, how do we help show them um, the connections that we've talked about today? You know, I think what the easiest ways, you know, social media has its strengths and its weaknesses, but that's one of the best ways. I, I feel like it's so hard. It's, it's intimidating for someone who hasn't ever, you know, been in the hills or in the field shooting pheasants. And um, it's hard to branch out, you know, so I think that just like what you did, Marissa, is you found people and you can, you can start engaging with just, you know, the messenger on Instagram and start creating friendships. And I actually have created several friendships via Instagram of other women who have reached out and said, Hey, I, you know, tell me where to go or tell me, I'd love to learn more about how to work your dogs or whatever it may be. And 
Um, it's pretty cool that for all the faults social media has, in my experience, that's been so positive. And that's probably the best way to reach people, I would say. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating how many individuals you can you can meet through that, um, you know, avenue and even just, you know, opening grouse season, I, I hunted with a, a woman who um, we had other connections, but uh, really we started becoming friends through Instagram. And I'll tell you, um, that's one of the coolest individuals that I've had the chance to hunt with yet. And so it's, yep. it's pretty remarkable, the friendships that you can make. Mm -hmm. um, Jenny, what are some of your thoughts on that? Um, I think what Carla said is is pretty spot on. You know, I um, people who have bird dogs just are like, oh, they're like, oh, you have a short hair. I'm like, you have a short hair. And it's like, you know, instant bonding. Like I ran into a couple on um, a trail run the other day that had a two month old little GSP pup. And she was so cute. And, you know, she was playing with my dog, Kai. And we just got to talking and she was like, you know, I bought this dog with the intent of really wanting to learn the Upland game and, you know, love putting the time into like the training and all those things. And she's like, I just don't know where to get started. So I think that's where organizations like, you know, Pheasants Forever and Quails Forever and the Women on the Wing Initiative can come in and be really helpful, um, you know, with, with kind of helping people with the foundations. Like there's kind of an intimidation factor of getting started in some of this and, uh, I think that it's a misnomer that you have to be, you know, completely fluent in this from the minute that you walk in the door. Like, let's all share information. Let's create an, uh, a non-threatening environment, if you will, where it's okay to ask questions and like seek to understand and identify a mentor. So, um, you know, Carla and I, with along with a couple other friends a few years ago, started a women's fly fishing group here in Central Oregon. And um, it was really with that intent as well of like, hey, like we all like to do this like we like to be together we're learning from each other why not replicate this so that other people can share in this same benefit of information gathering and making friends and this last year of course with COVID it's been a little tough but um it was something that was so welcomed and it spread like wildfire so I think you know if you've got mm. people in your community just like get together secure that time like bounce ideas off each other set times to you know do outings and go practice shooting together and um yeah, hopefully that's. <laughs> and I think you you hit on it earlier too, Jenny, and you made the comment of you know that that sometimes, um, and I can't remember how you phrased it, but you know I, I think it's so important for people to understand that it's okay to fail, and yes. you're gonna miss those shots, and you're gonna miss that fish. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I missed a hook set, and and it's like, oh, that was a big fish, or you know the the <laughs> perfect shot where your dog's on point right in front of you, and the flush is perfect, and you let your dog down, and that's okay. Like it happens to the, the people who have been out there since, you know, they were old enough to walk and that's just part of it. And, um, you know, letting people know that that's okay. And to be quite honest, if, if it wasn't that hard and if you didn't fail, I don't know that it would be as exciting. You know, if, if you knew yeah. that every time you walked out, you were going to catch that fish or you're going to shoot that bird, you know, who wants that certainty? Yeah, Carla and I, uh, we call those fish that you continually miss the Nema fish. <laughs> and Carla is really good. She is tenacious and the most persistent little bean. And she will sit there and she will she will always catch the Nema fish. And it's like, I mean, I'm like hungry, ready to go home. And she's like, nope, 
not going home until we catch the Nema fish. And she always does. Perseverance. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, excellent. Well, it has been so much fun to to chat with, with both of you. Bob, do you have anything to add before we get into the lightning round? Well, so uh, you guys are, you're both podcasting gold. (laughs) You are just, I, I love your personalities and the, the vibe that you two have as friends is Aww. infectious. And I just think it would be, it'd be just on, it'd be so much fun to just be along for the <laughs> ride on a hunting or fishing trip with you two, because you guys, you both have come up with these fun, the <laughs> Nema fish, and you have these, what was the, what was the other one? The purple oh, haze. Purple haze. You, you had another. Yeah. <laughs> They have purple haze for days. Like you have these these things around hunting and fishing that make it personal and fun and really create the bond. So so I could see where the two of you, like early on, you said, I think Carla said, yeah, I just love fishing with other women. And and Jenny is like, yeah, I love being with my best friend Carla, bird hunting and spending time together. So there's all the significant other guys that are out there. What advice do you have for them? So, cause there's that whole range of like some, some guys just want it to be their own thing, right? Like go to go hunting and fishing alone. And frankly, they can have that, right? Like go do your own thing. Then there's the other, other group of guys that, really would like to coach and we're shitty as coaches <laughs> you know a lot a lot of us are right um and then there's the other group that you know that, that um significant others just want to go along for the walk and the experience and and all those things are all you know fine to each their own but it, what advice you know do do you give the the male listeners out there when it comes to, you know, whether their, their girlfriend, their wife, their sister, their daughter wants to get involved in the outdoors as a upland bird hunter or as a fly fly angler, do you get them connected to a woman, a sister, or is there something that the guys can do? Like, where do I go from here? What do you tell me? I'll start, Jenny. I um, yeah, I would say that you know Craig is my partner, and we. I think that it's it's a double edged sword. I think he loves the fact that I go hunting and fishing with him. I think sometimes he wishes that I didn't, because sometimes I out fish him. So, um, but I think that there is a fine line of having someone as your partner, which he's learning that teaching me on the river isn't what I want. Like teach me, and then we go to the river. And I'm gonna fish, and I'm just gonna, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn from my own mistakes. And then, if I want a lesson, we'll talk about it. But teaching me while I'm out fishing, trying to catch a fish, doesn't work. He's learned that now, um, but he's taught me so much mm. about reading the water and learning where fish live. And then I can go and take those things. I can share them with Jenny, and Jenny has the same experience with people. And so, I think that having a guy in your life that is that wants to have you come along but not always be your teacher 
has been huge for me. Like, let's just go enjoy the time together. Because as you said, Bob, like, sometimes you're not the best teacher. If you want to enjoy those experiences together, don't always feel like you have to teach me. Just be there with me, you know? But Mm -hmm. I think having a female mentor to go out with, too, that's what Jenny was. I mean, she would go out, I'd go fishing with Craig, and then I would go learn from Jenny, and I would learn from Craig. And having both of them help me build confidence to succeed and to fail. That that's helpful. How important is it for the guy just to step away and let you experience it with your friends and just shut up and and like let you be your own individual? That's so important. And I think that's what um you know, as Craig and I have been together for almost five years now, he's learned that, you know, like everything else, you start developing it. And I learn things from other people. I teach him every once in a while, which is really hard for him. But um but like I said, it's um but I learned from people who the more time you spend on the water, the more you learn. Even if, if you're out there by yourself or with other people, it's all and that's where Jenny mentioned earlier, like I'm a persistent little shit, and I'll go out there and fish by myself for an hour just to work on things because I want to be good at it. I think that's okay too, learning that it's okay to go by yourself. You don't have to be with anyone else. Go spend time in the water just casting, not even trying to catch a fish but just casting and building that confidence so you can go with somebody else and not worry about what you're doing right or what you're doing wrong. You bring up a really good point, Carla. And it, you know, it's something that I heard during a, a, a mentored hunt and, you know, we didn't get in, into any birds. We were on uh, public land and I felt bad and, you know, made the comment, like, I'm really sorry we didn't get into birds. And she said, I actually really just liked being able to walk with the gun and feel comfortable with that. Um, and it's kind of along the lines of what you were just saying, but just go out and cast. I mean, I, I've, uh, you know, helped show people how to cast on dry land without even being in water and, you know, just getting comfortable. I think sometimes we, we assume that we have to set people up for success um, to get that bird or to get that fish. And yeah, that's golden. And for some people they may need that, but it's also just that comfort level and, and feeling confident when they get out there. No, I would just say that's right. I think building confidence and as a woman too, being, you know, the angling industry, the fly fishing industry is getting, swinging more towards supporting women. You know, they have all these initiatives Jenny can talk about more, but, um, and I think that's it, building confidence that you can go out by yourself and, or with other women and, um, you know, safety first, be careful when you go by yourself. But, um, no, I think I think that we're going in the right direction for sure. Well, I I will uh, reiterate. I have really enjoyed listening to both of you too. I, I I the banter that you have as best friends is uh, is really entertaining, and um, I I would encourage folks to uh, uh, follow you both on Instagram. Uh, Carla again is at Oregon Outdoor Girl, and. Um, Jenny is at C, and that's C with an A, C, the number two, Sage. And um, they, I think uh, Jenny mentioned earlier that the places that they hunt and they fish are beautiful places. And, you know, it's, it's not about the size of the trout or the number of the birds, um, although there are some pretty impressive animals in their, in their photos, but the, the beautiful um, landscape 
of Oregon that you guys both uh, experience is, is breathtaking in your Instagram feed. So folks should, um, should follow you. Um, Marissa, any closing thoughts for us? Oh, I, I don't think so. It's just been so much fun to chat with both of you and, you know, hear more about your story and how, you know, when we, when we talked about peas and carrots and, and peanut butter and jelly, you know, we're talking about upland fishing and, and or upland fishing. There we go. Upland hunting and fishing. Um, I never realized how perfect that was because that's you both, you know, you are peas and carrots and, and peanut butter and jelly. And, um, and it's just been so much fun to, to chat with you both. And um, I can honestly say, I can't wait to talk with you both again. And I'm, I, I know for sure that I'll see you guys in the future. And, um, so I'm looking forward to it and just appreciate you both jumping on today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> All right, folks. Thank you for listening. <laughs> uh, thank you folks for listening to this episode of on the wing podcast. Hope you have enjoyed it as much as I have talking cast and blast fins and feathers, and most importantly, friendships of uh, Jenny O'Brien and Carla Gibson, our featured guests, along with Marissa Jensen. Thank you all for, uh, for being a part of this episode. I'm Bob St. Pierre for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever saying thanks for listening and always follow the dog. Something good is going to rise. Thanks, folks. <laughs>